There's a huge debate between my siblings and I because they claim that my mom has favorites and that I'm her favorite. Now, my mom, of course, denies any such claim, but as I tell my brothers and sisters, yes, you're right, I am the favorite. A few weeks ago, my, brother sent, uh, or my mom sent a text message to my brother and I, and it was a picture of a t-shirt. And if you can't read it, this is what it says. My kids accuse me of having a favorite child, which is ridiculous because I don't like any of them. My grandbabies are my favorite. <laughs> now, this actually may be true for my mom. I didn't respond to the text initially, but it didn't take very long for my witty brother to respond, and he responded with a list. The list was numbered one through five, and my name came in first place. Second was Tide, Mallory, and Avery, and that's his daughters, my nieces, the only grandbabies. Number three was Zoe, which is my mom's dog. (laughs) Number four was Kyle, my brother, and number five was Victoria, my sister. And in my mom's sarcastic, yeah, right, text, she responds, you're hilarious. My response was, Looks right to me. Switching one and two may be okay, though. No, in all seriousness, though, I wanted to tell you this morning why I'm the favorite child. My mom said that she only had three rules, but as you parents know, you have way more than just three rules. But these three were her three biggies, the big three, and they were don't lie, don't cheat, and don't steal. And lucky you, you get to hear me talk about my mom's three big rules. Today, we're going to talk about not stealing. Next week, we're going to talk about not lying and cheating. Well, really, it's a form of stealing and lying because you're taking something and claiming that it's your own when it's actually someone else's work. And the reason I'm my mom's favorite is because I only broke one of those rules. My siblings, on the other hand, they're heathens. My righteousness far exceeds theirs. They broke two of the three rules, and I will share with you next week about my story and when I broke the first rule, but today I'm going to talk about them and how they broke the rule of not stealing. Now, what's interesting to me is that they both broke this rule at about the same age in their life. My brother's two years older than I am, my sister two years younger, but they both broke this rule at an early elementary age. They also both stole the same thing, and my mom also responded in a very similar way. For my sister, that incident took place on a Sunday morning. And as normal, we go to church on Sundays, but this morning, for whatever reason, we needed to stop by Ken's New Market, a grocery store in Flemingsburg where I grew up before we headed to church. Mom maybe needed to pick something up. I don't know really why. But we get to church, and we're sitting in the middle of church in the back row, the back pew, and... All of a sudden, my mom starts hearing my sister, and she starts smelling juicy fruit. Now, that was my mom's favorite gum, but she knew I don't have any juicy fruit in my purse. So all of a sudden, here in the middle of church, in the back pew, a court scene breaks out. My mom, she's the judge, the prosecutor, and the bailiff, and my sister's the defendant. And uh, there's some inquiring going on here, and finally the truth comes out. My sister had taken a pack of gum from the grocery store while my mom was checking out. And needless to say, my sister was told, this is not over yet, and once church is over, the matter would be settled. Now, from a kid's perspective, that wait is the worst. And I know you parents, you do it on purpose. 
You'll sit there and make, I'm going to make them think about this, make them anticipate and dream up all the possibilities of how I'm going to punish them. Well, needless to say, my mom didn't spare the rod in this situation, but also after church, she took my sister back to the Ken's New Market, had my sister apologize to the cashier, to the manager, and then with her own money, pay the manager back for the gum that she had stolen. My brother, like I said, he stole the same thing, but he had stole it from Kroger on a weekly grocery run. We didn't even make it home before my mom heard the smacking and smelled the gum in the back seat, and we whipped that car around, headed back to Kroger so he too could apologize and pay for the pack of gum. That's why I'm the favorite. I only broke one rule. They broke two rules. Now, in all seriousness, for real this time, my mom was pretty wise in her parenting during these situations because she could have easily just very had had a stern talking to with them, just allowed the situation to pass, kind of breeze over it a little bit. I mean, after all, what was it, like a 25-cent, 50-cent pack of gum? But she recognized something. This was more than just a disciplining moment. This was also a teaching moment. It was an opportunity to show all of us that to take things that don't belong to you is morally wrong. It's unjust. It's unfair. And this rule, which was a part of my mom's big three, is also a part of God's big ten. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, you shall not steal If you're joining us for the first time during this series, for the last seven weeks, we've been looking at each of the Ten Commandments, each week taking and looking at one command. And these commands, as we've learned, come from God, and as with all commands given by God, we should obey them. But we've also been learning and discovering that these commands don't come to us arbitrarily or without reason and rationale. These commands have a basis in the nature of God and who He is. But these commands are also protecting us and keeping us from experiencing suffering. See, oftentimes when people look at the Ten Commandments in particular or the Bible in general, all they see is this old man, long white beard, long white robe, standing holding a Bible and and making all these rules just so he can kill our fun But hopefully what you have seen, what we've attempted to do over the last month or so is to show you that what God is actually doing here is not just giving us rules, but giving us also promises. He's revealing for us this world and what it would look like to not have suffering. But in order to have a world without suffering, that means there are certain things that you and I cannot do. And so we can look at the commands in one or two ways. We can look at it in a very immature, selfish, and materialistic way and say, oh, it's only killing my fun. Or you can see it as breaking God's command, which the Bible calls sin. And as we've been learning, sin leads to suffering. It leads to suffering and injustice in our world and in individuals' lives. Now, regardless of where you are on your faith journey, maybe you're someone who's just searching, you're trying to figure out who God is and and what what Jesus is all about, or, or whether you're someone who's a fully devoted follower of Christ, I hope you can see That a world without morality, a world without right and wrong, is a world full of suffering and sorrow, grief and anguish and injustice. But let's be honest. You don't have to imagine that kind of world because the reality is we're already living in it. I mean, our world is already full of suffering, grief and injustice. And yet again, the Bible gives us insight into why. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For we have all, everyone, and everyone means me, and everyone means you, we have all, and we do all, sin. And the sin leads to suffering every single time. So let's explore the eighth command today about theft. Let's discover its promises and see also how this command is flipped on its head in the New Testament. 
So let's start back there, Exodus chapter 20 on Mount Sinai, when God's giving these commands to Moses. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Now that word steal, it means to take another person's property, property without their consent and without intending to return it. And many, and some do, look at this command very narrowly and and attempt to do that with this command. But in that, really what they're doing is splitting hairs and trying to justify their actions. This command encompasses a lot of things. It includes taking that piece of gum from the grocery store. It includes the bank robber. It includes the man who runs down the street and steals the old lady's purse. It includes the thief who breaks into someone's house and takes another person's belonging. Theft, stealing, is taking anything that doesn't belong to you and doing it by means of violence or cheating, embezzlement, or forgery. And so that also means theft of time. When you're on the clock at work and decide instead of working on the task given to you to accomplish and instead you spend that time scrolling through Facebook or making long personal phone calls, you're stealing. And in this instance, you're stealing time and stealing money from your employer because you're getting paid for a service you're not doing. And if you're paid by the hour, for example, but you don't work that full hour, you, you spend 20 minutes of that hour killing time not being productive, you're stealing but also to steal, it means that if you make a product or, or offer a service and that product doesn't do what you said it would do or, that, or you don't come through on the service, you as a businessman or businesswoman, you're stealing from the customer. And let me say this this morning. If you're a Christian businessman or Christian businesswoman or a Christian white-collar worker, you need to make sure that you're using ethical business practices, that you're not shortening out taking advantage of, overpricing, or manipulating your customers. That you go above and beyond to provide a product of service that is fair and quality. And to keep this command, the eighth command, means that you need to remain ethical and outstanding in your business practices. Deal honestly and fairly with people. That you rise above the corruption and be an honest, honest, diligent, hardworking employee or employer. Theft, as you know, causes suffering in our society, in our world. Listen to this statistic from the World Economic Report, and this statistic comes from the 2011-2012 report. I'm sure the numbers and the money's only increased since then. Corruption, which they define as the abuse of entrusted power for private gain, is the single greatest obstacle to economic and social development around the world. It distorts markets, stifles economic growth and sustainable development, debases democracy, and undermines the rule of law. It robs local populations, particularly in developing countries, of critically needed resources. Estimates show that the cost of corruption equals more than 5% of global GDP, which is, equals out to be about 2.6 trillion U.S. dollars, with more than 1 trillion paid in bribes each year. Although this is probably not surprising to you or I, it's startling to me because as a result of the corruption or theft for personal gain, societies and places, but more importantly, people are missing out on critical and necessary resources in order to survive. Even more so, I think it'd be interesting for us to figure out how much money is spent every year on theft prevention. Things like burglar alarms and security systems that we install in our homes and businesses or the amount of taxpayer dollars that go to policing these kinds of crimes, or even to try to figure out and calculate consumer product pricing increasing because corporations have to compensate for loss of product due to theft. Some of you know about a year ago, I worked over here at the dollar store beside the church, 
And you wouldn't believe how much is stolen from there in a year, how much money they lose as a result of theft. And from a business perspective, someone has to pay for the lost merchandise, and it's usually the customer. See, it's easy to see from a societal perspective that theft leads to suffering. But even on an individual level, theft leads to suffering. And if you've ever been stolen from, been cheated out of, or your home has been broken into, you know this firsthand. You have felt violated. And why? Why do you feel violated? Well, because there's a sense in all of us, a God-wired design that we work, that we make earnings and wages from our work, and that as a result of these earnings and wages, God is now making us a caretaker of them. And so we feel violated because something we've been entrusted with is now taken from our safekeeping. It's not hard to see and notice that theft and stealing causes and leads to suffering, and yet that's still not enough for people because it still happens Corruption, theft, under-the-table deals, cheating, and unethical business practices, they plague our society. But why? Why does stealing happen? Now, there may be a lot of reasons why someone might steal. Perhaps a college student is dared to steal something before they can become a part of a fraternity, or perhaps a politician does an under-the-table deal in order to get elected, or some car salesman cheats and takes advantage of a young female looking to buy a new car by getting more money out of her than the car is actually worth. But this morning, I've come with two reasons why someone might break the eighth command. Either you want something you cannot afford, or you need something you cannot afford. Now, whether you steal a pack of gum as a kid because you don't have the money to pay for it or you use unethical business practices to get ahead, you are wanting something you cannot afford. So for the politician who doesn't under the table deal to get elected, he wants election, but in his mind, he can't afford to get any other way unless he cheats or steals his way to the top. Or for the blue-collar worker who's guilty of time theft. They want the pay of the job, but they also don't want to have to work to get that pay. He can't afford not to have the job, but he wants the pay without the work. So let's look at each of these reasonings in turn. First, let's look at stealing because you need something you cannot afford. And let's be honest about this reasoning. Most of, if not 99.999999% of all theft does not fit into this category. You don't need a pack of gum. You don't need to get elected to a political office. You don't need to make more and more and more money in your business. In this instance... I am talking about someone who is entirely and completely poor, has nothing, and needs something for survival. Now, you'll notice in your bulletin that I've created a part two to this message. And in that part two, I actually deal with this kind of situation. And I'd encourage you to go and check that out. Is it right for someone to steal in order to provide, example, for example, for their family? And hopefully, it'll give you some helpful tools of how to make wise, ethical, biblical choices But we don't have time to get into all of those today. It's about a 20-minute message. You can go and hear that on our website. So let me just tell you the conclusion I came to. First, recognize this. This kind of reasoning is not meant for you or I to justify our actions. Chances are, if you're trying to wiggle your way into this kind of reasoning and justify the action saying, well, I needed this thing, then you're probably taking advantage of this kind of principle. But if there is anyone in this room or is hearing this this morning who truly, honestly, and with full integrity has to steal because you need something you cannot afford, hear this. Theft is still morally wrong. But God forgives, and more importantly, God provides. Theft is still morally wrong. God forgives, but more importantly, God provides. Let's look at this text from Matthew chapter 6. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
And we're going to start in verse 25. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon, one of the richest kings of the Old Testament in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that then is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God knows and God cares about our needs. He will and he does provide. He doesn't give us everything that we want, but he promises to take care of us. He'll provide the necessities of life if we would seek him and his kingdom. Now let's deal with the more common and likely more realistic scenario for most of us in this room. Those who steal because they want something they cannot afford. Now, we don't need to go in and explain any further that this, too, is still morally wrong. It's wrong regardless of the why. We've established that pretty fully here today. But I want to spend some time in this category because chances are if we're guilty of theft, it's because of this reason. We wanted something we couldn't afford, whether that's stealing a piece of gum, breaking into someone's home to steal their TV, or for time theft against our employer, or for small petty theft like using the company printer for personal items, or or for being an unethical businessman or woman and cheating customers out of quality products and services. But perhaps even you're saying to yourself, I don't know that I'm guilty of any of these things. I've never broken the eighth command. I still want to stay in this category because of the New Testament's teaching concerning the Eighth Command. It's profound what God has in mind for a successful world economy. It is counterintuitive, entirely countercultural, and against the grain. And so whether you're a thief or not, this picture, though, that God gives us, it's still meant for you. And in order for the vision that God has in mind to work, it requires everyone to begin to work like that. Not just a few, not just one or two, not just even one country, everyone to work in this way. See, Christ and his followers, they're going to take the eighth command and flip it on its head. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and so we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians to see what he has in mind for us. Ephesians chapter 4, and he writes to them and says this, and I believe the teaching is meant for us this morning. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, starting in verse 21. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now here, Paul envisions that anyone who's given their life to Christ and becomes a Christ follower, they are a new creation, a new self. And that in following Christ, you lay off your old way of life, the sin of doing things for yourself, for your own pleasure, and to get ahead. And as a result of the salvific work of Christ on the cross and the redeeming work of the renewing work of the Spirit and the life of a believer, a transformation is made. Then Paul goes into the specifics. He puts some flesh on the bones and tells us what this new person, this new creation, this new self is going to look like. He says this in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down where you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
So as a result of being a new person, there are going to be certain things that you do. One of those is to lay aside lying and to add or speak the truth. You lay aside anger and begin to forgive. And then in verse 28, Paul speaks to the command that we've been dealing with this morning, that of theft. He says this, Ephesians 4, 28, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. He tells us that anyone who is stealing needs to stop, that they would put that aside, lay it off, that they would stop doing it, stop in the middle of the action and keep from ever doing it again. But this new creation, this new self, this transformation that's taking place, it's not just satisfied with stopping the evil. Paul goes on and says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. So not only does Paul tell us to stop stealing, he turns the command around and says, start working. Now, we established this fact a few weeks ago when we talked about keeping the Sabbath day holy, and Jared did a wonderful job to show us that the Scriptures clearly teach that God has hardwired us with a desire and need to work, that we find meaning and significance in work, that just as God worked, we should work. Work is a natural thing, whether it's with our hands and physical labor or with our minds and intellectual work. Work is good, and work should transcend the need and the desire to steal. So God's solution for needing or wanting to steal is that you would work. That if you want something, you work for it. You don't take it, you labor for it. But Paul tells us over in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So not only is it that we should work, we should work heartily and diligently because honest and hard work is always commendable in Christian living. But we're not done yet. This is where it's going to get a little bit more scandalous, a little bit more striking and even more demanding. This is the part that's counterintuitive and cultural that flips the command on its head. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, remember Paul's dealing with stealing here. He said, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Did you hear what that? Did you hear what Paul said there? Paul's telling us to stop taking things that are not ours and start working so you can become a beneficial part of society that you're no longer asking what can I get from society or what does everyone else have to offer me? You can start becoming a contributor. But then he says, give it away. Stop taking, work for it, but give away what you work for. Now, if that is not entirely counterintuitive, flip something entirely upside down, I don't know what is. And chances are, this morning, you didn't expect for the sermon to be going there. But this verse goes there, the scriptures go there, and so we must stop stealing, start working, and give away what you earn. This is the God-given vision and the God-given solution to the problem of theft. In our world, if individuals in society would stop, stop taking if they would stop asking what's in it for me, what can I get, how can I benefit, how can I scheme and maneuver to get ahead, and they start thinking, how can I give, how can I share, how can I empty myself to provide for someone else, world hunger would be solved. Homelessness would be an archaic word, and poverty would be eliminated. But everyone has to begin to think like this. Not a select few, but everyone. They have to begin to think, what can I give instead of what can I take, even what can I keep? 
So that means that although I never broke my mom's third rule, and perhaps you're not a thief, this lifestyle of being a sacrificial giver is still meant for me, and it's still meant for you. If you're a thief this morning, what you need to hear is stop stealing, start working, and give away what you earn. If you're not a thief, then you need to hear keep working and keep giving away what you earn. This is the lifestyle, and this is also the precedent that Jesus set and that we ought to follow. Now, I want you to hear this. This is not another message about giving. It's not about giving to your church and tithing. This message is about a disposition of your heart that you are sacrificially generous. And I know the stats and I know the reality. When the preacher starts talking about money, people start shuffling in their seats and tuning them out. And sometimes that's justifiable. I understand that. But this is not about money. This is about your heart. That's what God's after This is not about tithing and offerings to the church. This is about being someone who's sacrificially generous. Jesus had a lot to say about our money. And this is what he says in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We've already turned to this passage once this morning when we talked about God providing. Well, right before Jesus says that, he says this up in verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, here it is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. No one can serve both God and money. See, the point that Paul makes over in the book of Ephesians about giving away and not keeping for yourself, being sacrificially generous, he gets that idea and that teaching from Jesus. Jesus wanted his followers not to be consumed with only gathering up for themselves, building bigger and bigger barns to store all of their accumulated wealth. See, to work all of your life and to have nice things that you've worked hard for, that's not unethical, nor is it immoral. You work for them. You earn them. But although it's not unethical, doesn't make it biblical. See, the Christ image, the Christ pattern and example and teaching that we get is that we don't store up for us, for me. We don't put our focus on my stuff and what I earn. We look rather to the interest of the kingdom, storing up treasures there that last eternally. And it's not going to take you very long to read through the Sermon on the Mount or through some of Jesus' teachings to find out that the kingdom of heaven is not about storing up treasures for yourself. It's not about you at all. Kingdom living, kingdom focus is always about the other. It's about the other. Your neighbor, the poor, the homeless, the needy, the widow, the orphan, And if you want to store up stuff for yourself, if you want to work and keep all the earnings, that's not kingdom living. Even if you want to work and store up most of the stuff and give a little bit of it away, the extra, that's not kingdom living. Because kingdom living is an all or nothing proposition. And I want so badly to be up here this morning and tell you that it's okay to work and to keep and to have everything for yourself. But the more I look at this text, Specifically, the more I look at Matthew chapter 6, 24 and 33, I realize it's getting harder and harder for me to do that. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or verse 33, seek first, first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, money's a material thing, and material things are not moral things, Meaning material things are not morally good or morally bad. They're morally neutral. 
It's what we do with material things that make them moral things. It makes it a moral issue. Money is neither morally good or morally bad. That discussion is mute. But what we do with our money, our possessions, that's when it becomes a moral and ethical discussion. And I'm going to say something this morning. Perhaps it's not going to make me very well liked. Some of you may even want to argue with me after service about it. But I say this morning humbly with my best understanding of the Scriptures and what God is calling us to do is that we should give and give and give and give till it hurts that once we think that we can give all that we can give, we should give more. I know a story of a woman who gave all that she had. I know we throw around that word sacrificially generous a lot around here. I've even used it in my sermon a few times already this morning. But in some ways, I feel like that word has lost its punch and its sting because by definition, to be sacrificially generous means that it's going to have to hurt. It means that we're going to have to keep giving until we've given everything away. Kingdom living means that we're going to have to become poor in spirit. Now hold with me here. I know I dropped a bit of a bombshell, but let me show you what I see the scriptures teaching. When Jesus started off his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5, he started with a series of blessings that many of us know as the Beatitudes. And these nine Beatitudes are what describe and what characterize the lifestyle of those who experience God's saving presence. The word blessed, when you hear that, it means superlatively happy, utmost happiness. It's a deep joy and deep happiness that's predicated not on the circumstances, but on the gracious response to their condition. And the very first blessing or beatitude that we get, believe it or not, it's about poverty. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a huge debate of whether Jesus is talking about the actual poor or the psychological condition or frame of mind of being poor. Either way, Jesus says it's the poor who find true wealth. It's the poor who are blessed. It's the poor who are superlatively happy. It's the poor who experience true deep joy and happiness. It's the poor who are citizens of heaven. And there's a part of me that thinks that it's the actual poor who understand the gospel better. And here's why. Because the gospel says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You don't have anything? Well, guess what? You don't need anything because everything's been taken care of. The bill has already been paid. And the reason I think the actual poor can understand the gospel better sometimes is because they know what it means to be actually poor, to have nothing. So it's not hard for them to understand then what it means to be spiritually poor, that nothing we have, nothing we can do or ever will do will pay for our salvation, our eternal life. And it's very easy then for the actual poor to cling on to the spiritual poor concept, and that's the reason why I think Jesus calls them blessed over in the book of Luke. But does this mean that unless you or I are physically poor, we won't ever understand the depth and the deep joy and blessedness of the gospel? Dylan, are you really saying that Jesus doesn't save the middle or the upper class? No, that's not what I'm saying. Hang tight with me here. Jesus does say this in Matthew chapter 19. He says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when he said this, it put his disciples in a dizzy because they didn't know what to think of it. But he responds, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, tells it how God makes it possible for the lower class, the middle class, and the upper class. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus was rich. And oh, was he rich. 
rich in splendor and glory, and in his rightful heavenly throne room, crowned with glory, honor, and might, he was and he is the mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But in his wealth he became poor, and oh, was he poor. He was born into a poor family, so poor that at his birth they had no place to lay him but in the feeding trough of animals. So poor that at his dedication at the temple, they didn't have enough money to pay for the normal sacrifice. So they paid and gave the sacrifice required for those who couldn't afford it. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. But even as Jesus grew older, he didn't rise and come out of that poverty. He stayed poor. He told us foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. On several occasions, he borrowed a transportation, someone's boat, to get from one city to the next. He asked a young boy for food so he could feed himself and also the large crowd. He asked a Samaritan woman for water to drink. But even in his last week of his life, as he was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he went in on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed upper room. And then he was crucified on a criminal's cross, stripped naked with no clothes, and then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Though he was rich, he became poor, and in his poverty, we might become rich. At his poorest moment, when he had nothing left, stripped naked on public display, hanging completely abused on a cross, and then buried in someone else's tomb, in that poverty, because he became poor, you and I can become rich. What profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his soul? You and I, At the expense of Jesus, who decided that it was better not to work and keep everything for himself, that it was actually better that he give everything up that was his, we get to become wealthy. He exchanged his wealth for us getting to become the wealthiest people in the world, getting to one day walk into a land and a home that's so glorious and so spectacular, so wonderful and so magnificent, that everything this world could buy could not compare with the riches that are to come. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can imagine what God has in store for those who love him. It's the gospel that leads to a life of poverty as a result of our generosity. Because the more we look at Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, who in his wealth became poor so that we might become wealthy. When we begin to wrap our minds and our heads Also, when we begin to wrap our hearts around the gospel and what Jesus did, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, that's when we become poor in spirit. That's when we realize our stuff doesn't matter. It's only going to disintegrate, rust, get destroyed, be stolen, break down, be consumed. And it wouldn't matter to us if we're poor. Because we have a wealth so magnificent and so wonderful, a wealth so joyous, an everlasting, never-ending life in the presence of God. So to give up and to give away everything else, it wouldn't matter. We can be poor. It wouldn't matter because we're living in God's kingdom. This morning I said that kingdom living means becoming or being poor in spirit. That working and keeping what you earn to yourself may be ethical, but it's not biblical. And I stand by that this morning only because of what Jesus did Jesus, who is richer than any one man or company or corporation or country or world, gave it all away at the cross. And when we give our lives to him, when we follow him entirely, it means that we're saying no more to me, no more to my wealth, my savings. But just like Jesus, I'm going to work hard and give sacrificially. 
That may mean this week you need to go home and, and start selling things off or giving things away, sharing your stuff, the things that you have. That may mean that you and your spouse need to sit down this week and look at your finances and figure out how you can begin to give more financially. It may mean that you need to figure out how you can work more so that you can give more. But here's what I know for every one of us who have given our life to Christ. It's all about a disposition of our hearts toward our possessions, our money, and our things. One preacher said it best, you don't have to become poor, but you can't stay rich. And if we think to ourselves, nope, I'm not giving that up. No way am I giving that away. No way am I not going to get to buy that thing. Then we're not living kingdom living And I'm not advocating that anyone or any of us in this room become actually poor, that we become homeless and have to live off what we can borrow and get from others. What I'm saying this morning is that more and more and more, as we look more and more and more at Jesus, we should be asking not what can I take, not even what can I keep, but what can I give? And it's not until we get to this point of being spiritually poor and realizing that we have nothing when it comes to our salvation that even our best of actions and choices are still but filthy rags, a stench because they're done with poor motives. It's not until we realize that we have no right in the presence of God, that we've got nothing, we can't afford the price for our salvation. It's also not until we understand the poverty that Christ went through, the wealth that he gave up, that we can begin to live this way as sacrificially generous. But we need God's help in doing it. So God, we pray through the working power of your spirit, that you would help us more and more to become poor in spirit. And that we would look to the example of Jesus, who in his wealth became poor so that we could become rich. We thank you so much for that wonderful sacrifice that he made where he gave up everything. We know, God, we are so poor. when it comes before you. We have no right to be in your presence. And yet, you give us salvation anyways as a free gift. And God, I pray that we can model that in our lives, that we would stop taking, stop stealing, that we would start working, and that we would have something to share with those in need. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And God, we know that you'll provide everything else. All this we pray in the name of the risen Lord, the name of Jesus. Amen.